are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. I'm glad to bring you a message on revival. And now for the month of January, let's start the, wor- the, the year off with some messages on a Bible kind of revival. The text for today is in Psalm 86 and, or 85 and verse 6. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? The preceding verses, verse 4, 5, Turn us, O God of our salvation, cause thine anger toward us to cease. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Will you notice that in this ver- this passage, revival means two things. It means God's people turning back toward God, and we beseech, and then we get God's favor on his people. So here's a, a blessed prayer. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? Now, I am an evangelist. That means that through my many years of ministry, my heart has been primarily set on getting people saved, and God has wonderfully helped so that I have seen many thousands of people come to Christ. And I have letters so that in my in the editorial work and writing, I have letters from over 14,600 people who have written to say they trusted Christ through the printed sermons that we have gotten out. I'm an evangelist. For many years, I was in big campaigns. For example, I've had citywide campaigns in Buffalo, in Cleveland, in Chicago, in Everett and Seattle, Washington, in Winston-Salem, in Durham, North Carolina, in Elmira, New York, in Oakland, California, in San Pedro, California, in Winston-Salem, in Durham, North Carolina, in Miami, Florida, in the city auditorium, and of course in literally hundreds and hundreds of churches I've had revival campaigns and many times big independent campaigns also. I am an evangelist. I'll be having, in the month of February, from February 1 through 20, I'll be in a citywide campaign in Columbus, Georgia. I'm invited there by a group of 22 churches, and other churches will cooperate in the campaign. They're making plans for that now. I'll have eight days of revival campaign in Wadsworth, Ohio, a little later. Much of the time I must give to the editorial work in preparing a climate for revival and encouraging others in soul winning and building soul winning churches. But my heart's love is for revival campaigns, evangelistic campaigns. Now, I'd like to talk to you about what is a revival. What is a revival? First of all, um, thy people, it's a revival with God's people. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? So a revival then does deal with God's people. May I suggest here that all you who'd like to have great evangelistic campaigns, you should remember God wants a dealing with his own people, and we should deal with their sins and with their coldness and bring them to confession and forsaking of sins and starting family altar and giving up dirty habits and... Uh, and making peace with those with whom they've been at odds, and then starting the main work of soul. And this is a, a revival to begin with God's people. And God has a plan for that. And we could we just fix it. Thy people, that they may rejoice in thee. There ought to be a renewal of love for God and God's people, a love for God, love for each other, a renewal of love. There ought to be 
a cleansing from sin. There's a plain promise of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I thank God in any blessed revival of God's people, there comes an acute uh, sensitiveness towards sin and burden about their sins and failures of the people of God. In one campaign at Oldham in Texas years ago, I remember one Tuesday morning we met in the big tabernacle, 300 people, and spent two hours simply in confessing our sins. That's all. No praises, no preaching, and no begging requests for others or especially, but getting things right with God and each other. Two hours of confession of sin. It's not surprising that we had 165 additions to that little church in the two weeks' time and that many, many were saved. I saw about 90 of those leather-faced ranchmen in that country baptized on profession of their faith. I'm saying people need to have a cleansing for sin. That's a part of revival. And there ought to be turning from it. And there ought to be Christian joy and blessedness and assurance and so on. There ought to be a return also to that one main end of Christianity. Always a good revival leads to soul winning. You see, a Christian isn't right with God who doesn't do what God said about soul winning. One who doesn't ignore the Great Commission is not right with God, backslidden and cold. You say, well, I don't feel called to that. Then you don't feel called to do right because you don't have to ask God if about soul winning. God's already told you what to do. You can ask God how and who and which way first and so on. But no Christian has a right to God, ask God if he should win souls or wait for some leading to win souls. We're already plainly commanded to take the gospel to every creature. And there are some people who would like to make a distinction, all learned Bible teachers, and they say, uh, don't say revival when you mean evangelism, but they're mistaken, for evangelism and revival are parts of the same thing. Uh, there isn't any genuine revival that doesn't get God people back on the track of getting people saved. At Pentecost, they had a great revival, so they had 3,000 people saved. And that's the, that's the real aim. That's what Jesus died for. That's what the gospel is about. That's why churches and preachers, and so uh, always in any revival, turns out to be an evangelistic campaign. If you make such a great distinction between revival and uh, evangelistic uh, services, then why is it that you never have a revival of just Bible teachers? No, the evangelist or the man who works as an evangelist in soul winning is the man who leads in a revival of God's people, too. You cannot separate people. You win souls and God's people are happy and blessed, and you get a revival and God's people win souls. So we're right to call an evangelistic campaign a revival. And uh, they're the same thing. May I say also that revival campaigns may properly be called a uh, revival. We could set out to have revival and announce at certain times we'll have a revival. Now, some people mock at that. They think that it's more or less a matter of fate or a predestination that God works here and utter disregard of men in his own choice. He may send a revival or he may not. You can't tell. That is not true. The Bible has certain uh, well-planned ways to have revival. I mean several plain invitations that we can meet and command that we can obey in order to have revival. In Second Chronicles seven fourteen, the scripture says, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. 
a well-known radio preacher and a good man, but he has widely stated that now there are no plans by whereby we could have revival. And, uh, for example, that this promise of Second Chronicles 7.14 does not apply to uh, soul-winning and revival efforts in this generation. He is mistaken. The trouble is that he is not himself an evangelist. He has not put this to an honest test, as I have in literally hundreds of communities, and thank God I found it is always true if God's people turn from their sins and get things right with God and get a burden for souls and wait on God for power of the Holy Spirit and then go out to win souls as God commanded. In every case, there can be a revival. In every case, there can be souls saved. And so God does have plans. Didn't he say plainly in, uh, verse, in Psalm 126 and verse 5 and 6, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy, and he that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seeds shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bring his sheaves with him. Some people very foolishly say, Well, revival's not worked up, they're prayed down. That is a half-truth, and being a half-truth, it may deceive more people and do more harm than if it was wholly false. It is only halfway true. Revivals are both prayed down and worked up. You see, the matter of soul winning involves two uh, people, God and men. And will you listen to me? God never saves a single lost soul without using some Christian to get him the gospel. Did you know that? Did you know God and Christians are partners in soul winning and that neither one can do it without the other? It is God's choice. By his wonderful grace, he put us in the plan. And God, when um, there was Cornelius begging and crying and waiting on God and fasting and wanted to be saved, and God sent an angel to tell him, you'll have to get a man. Send over to Joppa to the house of Simon the Tanner and get Simon Peter, and he'll tell you words whereby you and your house can be saved. Uh, there's God and Peter, and both were essential. The revivals are worked up and prayed down. You see, the, the truth is that um, it's a man that's failing and not God about revival. Somebody said, well, Brother Rasha, can you have revival now? That depends if God's people meet God's requirements, if God's people turn from their sins, if God's people wait on God and pray for the power of God, if God's people then set out to seek the lost and love them and pray for them and warn them, then always you can have people saved and always you can have a sweet reviving of God's people. You see, God has plans that are plainly outlined in the Bible, and Christians can follow those plans and have revival. That's why it's all right to plan a campaign and call it a revival. That is, if you plan to pay the price to have revival. I remember in my own ministry years ago, I had I'd sometimes have a blessed revival, lots of people saved, and then sometimes I'd have a flop and a hard pull and not very many people saved and not much reviving. And then I found two passages of Scripture. One in Romans 15, Paul says, When I come to you in Rome, I'm sure, he said, that I shall come to you in the fullness of the blessing of the, of the gospel of Christ. Oh, I said, Paul said, Before I get there, I know I'm going to have the power and blessing of God. And the other was a passage over in Corinthians where Paul said, Thanks be unto God who always causes us to triumph. So I said, All right, Lord, from this time on then, I won't go unless I have assurance you're in it. And when I go, I'm going to claim I have a right to have the power and the blessing. And so 
always God's people can have God's blessing if they are willing to pay the price and do the praying and do the working they ought to do. So I'm saying then the revival campaigns as properly conducted and properly planned. It's all right to call them revivals for they'll turn out to be revivals if we simply meet God's plan. That's just like a man who said, is a man presumptuous to say, I'm going to grow a crop of corn? No, it's not presumptuous. He knows, of course, he'll have to. You say, well, God has to make the corn sprout. That's true. And God has to make the sun shine. That's true. And God has to send the rain from him. Oh, yes, but then God's going to do that. And what I ought to do is to plow the ground, kill the weeds, plant the seed, cultivate it, and do my part, and God will do his part. And just as certain as that is God's law of sowing and reaping about revival, just as certain is that he that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seeds, shall come back with joy, with rejoicing, bring his sheaves with him. I'm saying this blessed matter of revival is with God and men, and it is proper to plan uh, such a campaign. And again I say, a revival campaign and an evangelistic campaign are the same. The people who say they're not are the people that don't win souls and they do not know. But nobody really wins souls except one with a warm heart and a burden before God. And nobody is really revived unless he sets out to do what God has plainly commanded every Christian to do, that is to win souls. Ah, oh, may God give us in blessed, blessed revivals. Um, let's see, then, prolonged revival campaigns are proper. Uh, you say, well, Brother Rice, don't you think we could have perennial revival in the church? Well, there ought to come a time of, um, of a special revival, though. There ought to be times that are special in a political uh, world of the Democratic primaries and then the National Convention. That's a revival. Democrats getting ready, spending more money, working harder to elect another president or so are the Republicans that uh, start out to campaign. When a great department store puts on a big sale and hires extra sales girls and does extra advertising, that's a revival. And why not? Oh, and every springtime when a man gets his plows and tracks all ready and breaks the soil and plants his seed and God sends the rain and the sun to shine upon it, and that's in some sense a revival starting over again. I can remember as a boy in the old time when people laid by the crops. That meant now the corn's about done, and the last plying would uh, throw dirt up on the corn and uh, would kill the weeds, and now you wait in the work for the... Now you can go fishing if you want to, though you worked awfully hard this summer. Now you can go visit the kinfolks if you want to. Well, so revival starts again in farming. And that's the way it is with us. You know, mankind being a poor, fallen creatures we are, Oh, we need to come back for refreshing. Isn't that the meaning of the model prayer? When the Lord said to us, uh, uh, he said, when you pray, say, uh, forgive us our trespasses. Uh, you mean a Christian needs to come and get new cleansing? Oh, yes, and get new help every day. So revival is essential to the right kind. And we need, you say, well, isn't Sunday enough? No, that's good, but don't you think there ought to be a time when you're preaching every day instead of just on Sunday, and a prayer meeting every day instead of just on Sunday? So they did at Pentecost and after, and daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Oh, what a flood tide of revival continued where they did it that way, and where the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So there comes a time churches ought to get together when they can, you ought to get the crowd. Perhaps you need some kind of meeting in a high school auditorium or in a big tent or in, 
or in the city auditorium or some other way to reach the mass and public that doesn't come to your little church. You see, revival campaigns and evangelistic campaigns ought to set out to get the gospel to every creature possible. And I urge people everywhere, say, I'm going to follow the Lord's plan and have revivals. I hope to speak more on the line next week about the revival at Pentecost and other teachings about revival. You may have these messages in print if you like them. But let me ask you, dear Christian friends, why don't you say we must have a blessed revival in our church and in our community and times of special pleading and prayer, maybe fasting and prayer, maybe all-night prayers. There'll be times of confessing sin and making things right with neighbor and seeking the will of God and then setting out to win a multitude of souls. God send great revivals. I'm speaking this month four times on revivals. I have a burden about revivals. I am an evangelist. I've spent my life, my main motive, as God has helped me, has been to win souls and teach others to win souls and to stir up people to have great soul-winning churches. And so I want to talk to you this time about the revival at Pentecost. It is discussed in Acts chapter 2. When I was just a fellow, young fellow, 15, I discovered this chapter. I doubtless had read it before, but my heart was hunger for the power of God. And in a, a blessed revival in our small town church in West Texas, my heart got burdened and I got to reading this. And I thought then that was the most amazing and glorious and wonderful thing I ever saw. Here was a revival in which they had 3,000 people saved in one day. I want to read you a part of that story in Acts chapter 2. When, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared of them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues, let's say other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, and the multitude came together and were confounded, because that everyone heard them speak in his own language. Note carefully, the other languages here were real languages, and people heard them who were born and who had those languages from childhood. I read on verse 7, And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? And the wonderful preaching followed. And now then, I take up the story and begin with verse, uh, with, uh, verse 40. And with many other words did he... Peter, testifying, exhort, saying, Save yourself from this untoward generation. And uh, then they that glad received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All that believed were together and had all things common, sold to possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. My, this wonderful revival at Pentecost. Uh, first of all, let me say that this is a proper example to copy. This uh, Pentecost is a good kind of revival that we should plan for. They had waited in that upper room like Jesus said. He said to them, Now you are to go to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
in Luke 24, 46 and following, he said that repentance or remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things, and behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. And so what did they pray for? To be endued with power to witness. And they did have power, and they did witness, and so 3,000 people were saved. This is a proper example for us to copy. In the first place, this is they're simply carrying out the Great Commission. The Lord had commanded them to get the gospel to every creature, and they, uh, but he said, wait for power, and they did, and now they're starting to fulfill this Great Commission. So that we have the same commission, we have the same job, that take the gospel to every creature. Uh, they didn't get it to every creature, so the job is only partly done, and every Christian is to carry on the same kind of a plan to get the gospel to everybody we can. So we ought to follow this kind of a pattern and be thrilled by it and have blessed revivals where we can. I do not mean necessarily it'll be 3,000 in one day. I read the other day Dr. Tom Malone called me. They'd had a blessed week They'd had some revival preaching, Dr. Lakin. He said that they had 600 people out visiting from house to house. They had lunch at the church every day, and they had, oh, a multitude, hundreds of people saved. And Sunday morning, they baptized 151 converts, and Sunday night, five more, 156 converts saved and baptized in that one week, and others saved, perhaps, who went to other churches. I'm saying it's a good example for us to have. And uh, when maybe the details, it won't be ever detail alike, but the power of God and the witnessing and souls being saved, that's a pattern for us today because the Great Commission is given to us too. We too are to take the gospel to every creature. Well, you notice the message here and the power and the, the, the way they waited on God for it and the results. We need now just as much as then. We too must pray for God's power. We too must go and witness. We too must have reached sinners with the gospel and get them saved. We want to get our loved ones saved and keep people from going to hell. So then we ought to have such revivals too. Miracles, they had wonderful miracles. In the first place here, they were given the power to speak to these uh, people who were present in their own languages because they wanted to get them saved and that's the only way they could get to them. And so they spoke to them in their own language in which they were born, the wonderful works of God and so many were saved. Um, miracles, yes, you understand, miracles are not always the same. They're incidental. But everywhere there is a great outpouring of power and revival and preaching and pleading and faith, well, also God does some wonderful things. I look back on some wonderful cases of miraculous healing in my poor ministry. I do not believe in the so-called healing services because I'm not a divine healer. I do not believe it's always God's will to heal a sick, but I'm saying as God selects and as it is his uh, lays, lays it on the hearts of people and they pray. Often in times of great revivals, there are wonderful answers to prayer, and that includes healing. I remember that Charles G. Penny, in his Blessed Revivals, found a strange thing, one poor woman who could not read, and she prayed for God to help her, and then she found she could read the Bible. And Mr. Finney said, I want to tell you the facts. I don't explain it. I remember that the same thing happened. Dr. Jack Hiles tells us of one man in his church in Hammond, Indiana. I can tell many a case where wonderful 
great flood tides of rain came to drought-stricken country when God's people prayed in a revival. I could tell the time when it rained all about the little, the, that ground of a blessed great revival, and we prayed, and it did not interrupt, though the rain was two blocks away from us in Dallas, Texas. Miracles in answer to prayer. You see, when you get right and get on the main track of winning souls and you wait on God and have his power, then it's not surprising if sometimes there are some wonderful things to the glory of God. Yes, miracles when it pleases God. In Wichita, Kansas, a pastor's wife, brain tumor, and the doctor said she probably won't last six months. We've done all we can do. And the pastor said, I don't see how I can get along, Brother Jack Adrian. I can't get along without my wife. He said, will you come into my house and pray? And we did. An amazing thing happened. In some way, that tumor regressed, and now she's gone for more than two years, fully active in the work, and no bother at all about that. I'm just saying God does wonderfully show us power in the midst of great revivals. And the promises include now that if they had revival then, you know, Peter said, this is that spoken by the prophet Joel, it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. He didn't say one day, he said days. And Peter said, this is it. You mean Pentecost then was one of those days, but not the whole age, was it? And so then, um, if, the, if Pentecost they had that blessing, then the days promise meant the next day too, and the next day too, and on through this age, as that scripture says, unto the great and notable day of the Lord come. And in Acts 2.38, Peter said, they said, what will we do, Peter? We want what you have here. And Peter said, repent then, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Oh, the blessed power of God to witness and win souls is promised for us and for all that are far off. Everyone God ever calls to be saved can have power to win souls. So this scripture says uh, we can rejoice that. Isn't that what it said in Acts 1.8? Jesus said, But ye shall receive power when the Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That sweet promise he gave them is to us and to all even to the uttermost parts of the earth so uh, that uh, we can call Pentecost a good example of a revival. There are some marvelous facts about a revival of Pentecost. First 3,000 people are saved. Oh, if your heart doesn't thrill to that, you must not be right with God. It's a strange thing to me that anybody could read this wonderful story at Pentecost and they're all thinking about the origin of the church or they're thinking about uh, uh, sanctification or they're thinking about talking in tongues and, and nobody seems to give a hoot about these poor souls that would have gone to hell but God got them saved through the witnessing here this day and wonderful power. Uh, we ought to be interested in what God's interested in and we ought to go to talking about what God's talking about when we talk about Pentecost and what happened here. They had three thousand people saved, saved for eternity, and in heaven now for endless ages because of what happened there that day, and that's wonderful. I notice another thing, it got the attention of thousands. Now, I'm for every revival when a little church has some special services and they get some children from the Sunday school saved and, and anybody else they can get to come in, I'm for that. But I'm also 
I'm even more for the big campaign that sets out to reach everybody in town and sets out to get the attention of all the country round about and spread the news. I remember how I rejoiced in that many times. I was in Moncton, in uh, uh, New Brunswick, in Moncton, in a blessed revival, high school auditorium, about five churches supporting it. And I remember the word got out on the radio, and one family drove in 40 miles that night, and the whole family was saved. And then they told us, we came to get saved. We heard about it on the radio, and we came to get saved. Yes, uh, uh, so at the Pentecost, it was uh, notable that widespread interest, all, and they talked about it everywhere, and uh, so we ought to feel. Listen, preacher, you ought to feel accountable for everybody in town. You ought to feel accountable to knock on every door, to beg every sinner to be saved, to warn every Christian to help win souls. And God intends not just little incidental things alone, though God can use small things also, but everybody ought to say, oh, but to get everybody saved, that we can. That's the plan they had at Pentecost. That was a marvelous thing about it. That's why we ought to have often revival campaigns in big tents and in city auditoriums and in open-air campaigns the best we can. Well, let's see then. Another thing uh, that, uh, that roused the open opposition of the wicked. You know, you just well put this down. The devil may not be against you starting a school. It may not be if you don't talk too much about the Lord. It may not be against you starting a grocery store or a filling station. But if you have a kind of revival that makes a drunkard sober and a harlot pure and infidel into a believing saint, then the devil's going to be against that. I remember in a, a big campaign at Sherman, Texas, I one early morning got on the train to go to Fort Worth for a big radio broadcast and coming back for the campaign that night. And uh, so a man on the plane said, on that train said to me, he said, you're evangelist John R. Rice, aren't you? And I said, yes. He said, I, you owe me $300. They said, how's that? He said, I lost that much this last week. He said, because the people all went to your revival instead of coming to my theater. Well, I, I just uh, cried and cried about that. But I'm just saying you're going to rouse opposition. Then one preacher said to me, Brother Rice, you talk about the devil like he's a, a person and like he's always got it in for you. And why well, says the devil doesn't bother me. I said, if you twisted his tail like I do, he'd bother you. If you've got enough people saved and changed enough lives and enough communities, the devil would bother you. So here there rose opposition and beatings of the people and putting preachers in jail. And a little bit later, Stephen, a good deacon, is stoned to death. And then they cut off the head of, of Apostle James. I'm just saying they aroused the opposition of wicked people. Such a big revival gets attention and aroused opposition. Here's another. They followed up the converts. They were baptized. They were glad to receive this word, were baptized. And they met then in fellowship and breaking of bread. And they set out to give liberally. And they continued steadfastly in the apostle doctrine. Uh, they didn't neglect these new converts. You know, we don't go to the hospital and have a baby and then leave the baby at the hospital, do you? Well, then we shouldn't. When you go get somebody saved, then go get him and get him back at your house for a coffee break and a little fellowship with some Christians and then get him in your car and take him to church and then you encourage him to you know, get acquainted with a preacher and to get baptized and get in with God's people. I'm saying, oh, follow up the converts and see that lives are changed. Now, one who's trusted Jesus is saved and the baby is born in the family, whether he's got any teeth or whether he can walk or not. But we ought to set out to follow up the converts and, and teach them and grow them to please God. Now, that, here's another thing. Oh, may God do it again. Don't you think that it'd be wonderful if in your community we'd have such a revival? 
if um, Christians would love one another instead of thinking about building your little group or your church. Oh, it'll be built if it's the power of God on it and the church is what it ought to be. You'll get blessings too. Them that honor me, I will honor, the Lord says. But why don't you say, but ought to reach everybody in town and get ever born again Bible-believing Christian together to go get people saved. And so Bible-believing Christians that can trust one another to be true to Christ, they should join in wherever they can. I do not mean join with infidels. I don't mean join with enemies of the Bible. And I don't mean join with the people that are modernists and liberals. I mean join with good, born-again, Bible-believing Christians to get out the gospel and get people saved. May God send great revivals. I want to see in America not just little eight days revivals. I want to see again some great revivals in principal cities. I worked years ago to bring back such campaigns, and God wonderfully blessed until great campaigns were held all over America. Now let's do it again. And I want the principal great soul-winning preachers to join me in that effort, and some of them will in to cities. I have right now a plea from Pittsburgh. Sixteen pastors met together, and they want a campaign this next fall, and they're meeting to plan together again about it, and God will help us to get somebody for that. Now call your attention to Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm giving a series of messages on revival. A good many years ago, I had a burden on my heart to help bring back revival campaigns to America, great citywide revival campaigns. The Lord greatly helped, and I had citywide campaigns in Buffalo, Cleveland, Seattle, Chicago, Miami, Winston-Salem, Durham, San Pedro, California, and other cities. And uh, now, for many years, I've been so burdened with the sword of the Lord spreading revival fire over a wide area, trying to make revival uh, climate possible for America. I'm burdened now about great citywide campaigns put on by fundamental Bible believers alone, not mixing up with modernists and not having infidels on the platform or to lead in prayer or to get the converts and not to send them off to false cults. And so I'm going to be in a citywide campaign at Columbus, Georgia, February 1 to 20. And those three weeks in a big auditorium, we hope we'll have many hundreds of people saved. I feel a call to call America to revival. And I want to talk to you today about the high cost of revival. For you can have revival. God still answers prayer. The gospel is still the power of God to salvation. But many people are not willing to pay the price it takes to have great and blessed revivals. As a sample example of this matter of what it costs to have the power of God, I turn to Nehemiah, the first chapter. Here the children of Israel are in captivity over in Babylon. And two of these people go back to Jerusalem to see how things are. One was Hanani, brother of Nehemiah. When he got back, Nehemiah said, how is it over there in the province of Jerusalem since all of us have been carried captive? And Ezra went back some years ago to try to build a temple. How is it there? And they answered, they said to me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down. The gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven and said, I beseech the O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive. 
attentive, and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Now here is a case where children of Israel are in captivity for their sins. Oh, they need reviving. Uh, how will we get back to the land of Israel, of Canaan? How will we make Jerusalem an inhabited city again? How is Jesus to be born at Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth among the Jews? And how is there to be a Sanhedrin to condemn him to die after Jesus has lived his life and ready to die an atoning death? I say Israel must be brought back to Palestine. And now God uses a man, Nehemiah, and uh, others that join him in this effort to have the power of God and bring about a great revival to Israel and return to the land of promise. I want you to think with me about that. How did people in Bible times find God, and how did they have the power of God? Well, a good text for our subtext for that would be in Jeremiah chapter 29. The children of Israel were in captivity, and he said, uh, I know the thoughts I think towards you, God says, thoughts of good and not of evil, to bring you an expected end. Then shall you go and call upon me, and you shall pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. Now when you really want the blessing of God, the power of God to come, and the power to reach out to many and many souls to be saved, what is it going to cost? Well, you must mean seek God with all your heart. Now how did Nehemiah do that, and how did others do it? Well, first of all, Nehemiah had an extended season of prayer. He said, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. He said, Lord, hear this prayer that I pray before thee now day and night, day and night praying. Oh, in revivals, in times of seeking lost sinners and having the power of God to win lost sinners, there must be times of extended seasons of prayer, waiting on God in prayer. How often that's commanded and promised in the Bible. In Second Chronicles 7, 14, If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and heal their land. Seek my face, extended seasons season of prayer. You remember that's the way it was with uh, Nehemiah. He went on for a great period of time, and now for four months he waited on God, and the power of God and burden was on him. You remember, don't you, how the children, the apostles in uh, Acts chapter 1, Jesus had commanded them to tarry in Jerusalem till he be endued with power from on high. So in Acts 1, 14, we read about the apostles. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Oh, they waited in that upper room, and they, I think they fasted, and they cried to God and confessed their sin, no doubt, and pleaded for the ten days till the mighty power of God came at Pentecost, and they had three thousand people saved, waiting on God. That's what Isaiah 40 says, they that, in verses 28 to 30, uh, that, that he giveth power to the faint, to them that have no might, he increases strength, even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Oh, Christians need extended seasons of prayer. And uh, we can wait on God and have his power, and we ought to do it. You remember how Jacob, when he fled from his brother Esau, and the year 20 years have gone by, and God says, go back now to your father's house. And Esau's coming to meet him, had sworn to kill him. He has 400 armed men. And so Jacob waited alone with God and prayed all the night. And an angel of God came, and he held on to the angel and would not let him go until he got his blessing. So pleading with God for power. And the next morning he met Esau with a happy face, and Esau loved him, and the grudge is all gone. Extended season of prayer. I was in a revival campaign at Buffalo, uh, New York, in 19 and, uh, and 45, and I found uh, the laymen in the churches insisted on revival, and the pastors finally consented. And so a great crowd, about 85 or 90 churches, and the Christian businessmen, the Youth for Christ, and other organizations joined in to have a blessed revival in Klein Hand Music Hall. But I went to a pastor's conference on Monday morning, and I found to my shocked surprise that these pastors were angry with each other and disorganized and critical and not prepared for revival, and they quarreled and fussed with each other publicly. And that night, I, uh, with a broken heart, I preached, and then I said on Tuesday night, how can you expect the blessing of God when we have division and strife among the preachers and no burden of heart about it? I said, why don't you call a night of prayer and pray all night and get ready so God can give a revival? I started to close the service that night, and the pastor said, wait. I had your choir 300 behind me on the platform and 30 or 40 preachers lined up there. And I said, and the one man said, we've been passing notes. You're right. We ought to have a night of prayer. We said a night of prayer Wednesday night after the service. We went to a local church and 300 met to pray. At sun up the next morning, many still on their faces. And for every Wednesday night in those three weeks, we prayed all night, literally all night. And the power of God came. And Thursday night, I said, I hadn't intended to give an invitation till Sunday night, but I felt a moving of God. And I said, is anybody here wants to be saved? I do, a woman said. I I do five adults, and I sent preachers to get them, and so we started giving the invitation and blessed, blessed revival. God's people need extended seasons of prayer for revival. What else does it take? It takes a broken heart and tears. Oh, these cold hearts of ours. Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept. You mean a, a man, a prophet of God, weeping? Oh, yes. And Jeremiah said, Oh, that my head were a fountain of waters that I might weep over the slain of the daughters of my people. Um, weeping. You know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered thy children as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. You remember that Paul said um, to the elders of Ephesus. He said, I spent three years in Ephesus. I'm not to blame if anybody here goes to hell. He said, wherefore, remember, by the space of three years, I cease not to warn men night and day with tears. Oh, night and day with tears. That's the way to, to come with a broken heart if you want the blessing of God. I'm certain, according to Psalm 126 and verses 5 and 6, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. You don't have much reaping because you don't have much sowing. You don't have much joy because you don't have much tears over your sins and failures and with holy concern. People need to have a broken heart over our sins. Nehemiah here, well, he said, I want 
the power of God. I want God to restore Israel. And he spent extended seasons of time in prayer and confession. And we find four months later he come before the king. The king said, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Are you sick? Circles under his eyes and he'd lost weight and it's obvious. And uh, so he said, no, I'm not sick. Well, the king said, then this is nothing else but sorrow of heart. What is it? And he said, oh, it's Jerusalem. I must go and rebuild Jerusalem waiting on God and with broken heart and tears. So we need today, if you want to have a blessed revival. What does it take? It takes confession and forsaking of sin. Nehemiah said, I, Lord, hear these prayers. I pray before you now day and night and confess the sins of the children of Israel. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've done wickedly, he said. We've not listened to thy commandments nor hearkened to thy servants or prophets. A confession of sin. How we do need that. Oh, if God's people, if you want to have the power of God on you, there must be a turning away from our worldliness and away from our negligence. These homes that never have a family altar, no time of prayer and Bible reading. These homes that don't whip the children and make them mind. These, uh, these families where they're they go on with nagging and strife in the home and dirty habits and, and uh, no prayer life. And uh, how can you expect God to bless? There ought to be confession and forsaking of sin. And years ago in Olton, a county seat in West Texas in Lamb County, I had a blessed revival. I called for a two-hour session one morning only of confession of sin. No preaching, two hours under a big tabernacle. Two hours, no preaching, no praises even. No, not even any request for prayer, but confession of sin. And we spent those two hours confessing the sin. It's not been surprising that the power of God came and we had oh, 165 people came to join that little church. I saw 90 of those old sinners. I mean, tough old cow men in that country, wonderfully saved and baptized in a big galvanized iron windmill tank. I'm saying if God's people get a burden over their sins and confess and their sin, forsake their sins. Don't you remember that First John 1 9 says if we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And Proverbs 28.13 says that he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. So Nehemiah is confessing his sins, and so we ought to do. I found that wherever God's people have a sensitive heart, they feel they've been wrong, and they admit it with concern and with holy tears, why God forgives and cleans up and then God's ready to give revival and save souls also. Uh, what if you really meant business with all your heart, as Nehemiah did? Uh, what would you do to how could you, could you have revival? What is the price to pay for revival? Well, an all-out effort, an all-out effort. You know, I'm thinking about this coming revival campaign in Columbus, Georgia, and I'm, and I'm glad they're working and getting ready. You're going to have to spend money to have revival. You're going to have to hire a big place. You're going to have to have big advertising, and that's good. That's part of the work. But you're going to have to have a lot of people that set out to go from house to house and invite people to come or get people in their cars. You're going to have to get some buses going to bring in the people to the meeting. You're going to have to have people 
people to be ushers and people to sing in the choir and uh, people to deal with the inquirers. But no, no way out about it. But if you're going to have a revival, you've got to have do what God says about the Great Commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. You can't get to other parts of the world, but you can do your part, and God intends you to do it. They did in Jerusalem, where the Scripture says that daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Oh, I want us to go to showing again in America what God will do when his people mean business with all the heart, and they don't mind spending the money, and they don't mind spending the time, and they don't mind the tears and waiting on God, and don't mind going and getting things right with the neighbors so we can have revival and have a great breaking out of power to win lost people again. Let me say again that uh, you cannot separate two things that God has put together. That is reviving of God's people and evangelism of the lost. Sometimes say, people say, well, we have evangelistic meetings. Well, that's good. The meetings ought to be evangelistic. But if you don't have some plain preaching against sin and get Christians to quit their sins and quit the lewd movies and quit the, the, the um, miniskirts and quit the parking in cars and necking in the, on the roads in the night and all the lewdness and sin, if you don't get people to turn away from the liquor and turn back to family altar and family prayers and soul winning, you're not going to have souls saved unless Christians do right. God uses Christians to win souls, and he can't use them unless there's a holy concern in turning to God. So let's have a real reviving among the people of God. There's a high cost to pay for revival. Will you pay it in your town and your church? Get people together and pray. And old preachers in different churches get together and plan and try to get some big campaigns with Bible believers only. Not a single infidel, not a moderate, not a liberal in it. And people that love the Lord and believe the Bible unite to win souls and bring great revivals to American cities again. God send the time. Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons podcast from PreachTheBible.org a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, preachthebible.org.